So, um, good morning. We're, this, this week, we're going to talk about um, law in the time of Jesus. And this morning when I got here, I dropped off Lilith over in the preschool, and Frida was like, I just got this book, and I want to show it to you. And it's called The World Jesus Knew, right? This is a children's book, and I laughed, and I was like, oh, page 10 is everything I'm talking about this morning. <laughs> so if you have more questions, uh, this might be a great resource guide. But it's just, you know, funny small world because our questions are, um, they're essential and they're eternal questions, right? I mean, so much so that there's a children's book that's answering the same things that we're looking at today. So we're going to look at um, what law looked like, what it meant, what law meant, right, at the time of Jesus. So um, between last week and this week, what I realized is that essentially what we're doing in this four-week series is we're trying to unpack or maybe even debunk some myths about um, Judaism in the time of Jesus, which is why we ended up picking the topics that we picked. And as I sort of drilled down about it, I was like, yeah, that's what we really want to do. So that the underlying belief um, that maybe has been woven into some of Christianity that I really want to talk about today is that, that Torah law was impossible to follow. Right? That's sort of belief number one. Sound vaguely familiar? Yes? No? Okay. All right. Great. Phew. Uh, and the other, that, that, that you have to have the law or you have to have the Torah in order to earn God's love and affection. Also sound familiar? Right? And that those were things that, that, that Christianity and that Jesus was moving the world away from. Okay? Um, I'm not going to upend the apple cart around Christian belief, but I am going to try to upend the apple cart around those particular um, ideas. So there's some truth to them. There's always some truth to everything. That's a really absolute statement that I just make. It is possible in most cases that there is some truth to the arguments that are being made. Um, and we're going to look at what, what those truths and what the sort of eh, some of the um, other sides of the argument might, might be. So let's start by thinking about what, what's the job that law was trying to get done in the time of Jesus. Right? Why do you need law? Does anyone want to, what the laws did? Anyone want to take a stab at that? It's a great question. Why do you have law? Religious law, not, not civil law. What's that? Stability. Stability, that's great. Order. Protection. What do you have law that has to do with God? Oh, good. I guess you guys are stumper. Okay. So that's really what I want to think about, law with respect to God, what the relationship is between the two, those two things. Right? Some of the laws are put in place to just say, I'm going to see if you'll follow my laws. Right? It's sort of like a bit of a, um, some kind of testing. Right? So there's a law that says you're not supposed to mix linen and wool. It's called shotness, just the name of the law. Right? Who cares if you're mixing linen and wool? In the modern age, I can't imagine anyone in this room is not wearing some kind of poly-cotton blend, right? But if there's a law in place that says you have to do this thing that maybe isn't the most logical, but I want you to do it anyway, it's a real sign. It's a little, like a mini test of faith every morning when you put your, your garments on, right? Uh, my, my rabbi tells this great story of being in Filene's basement, which is like the basement, bargain basement store to end all bargain basement stores. And my rabbi is like 5'4", uh, like right? I'm 5'3". With the heels on, I'm much taller. But right? he's like not a tall guy, and how he found this perfect 
blazer, like, right, gorgeous, amazing, fit just right, which is hard to do as a man of his stature. And when he went to, right, and he went, he looked at the tag, and it was linen and wool. Right, it was, it was like 90% on sale, right, you know, the whole best deal ever, but it was linen and wool and how he put it back. Because it's a little mini test, right? So some of the laws are about that. Some of the laws are about trying to distinguish your group from other groups. That's a huge part, by the way, of the conversation between Judaism and Christianity. Sometimes Judaism and sometimes Christianity did things so that they could just be not the other one. Think about siblings and their rivalries with each other. How often, raise your hand if you have a sibling. You know, right? All the things that you did to be just not like them. Right? So Judaism and Christianity does that a lot. Um, so within Judas, within Jewish law, you have these moments where you're trying to be not like, particularly um, like the pagans. Right? So laws around against cult prostitution, for example, uh, really was there to sort of separate Jews from, from pagan religions uh, at the time. And the other are for um, creating a sense of holiness. Right? How do you get to be close to God? What does that look like? Uh, if we look at the text, we look at the Torah, when I say Torah, I said this last time, but for those of you who weren't here, right? Torah refers to the five books of Moses. Also, another word for that is the Pentateuch. You might call it the um, Old Testament. Um, I think the term Hebrew Testament is more politically correct um, when in mixed company. Um, uh, so just so you know, right, what we're talking about, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So you see in the book of Genesis, right, in chapter 1, it says people are created in God's image. We read in Leviticus, you shall be holy, for I, Adonai, your God, am holy. And then we read in Deuteronomy, what does God want from you but to walk in God's ways, to love and serve God with all your heart, and to keep the commandments and statutes. Right? So if you're made in the image of God and you want to be holy, the way that you do that is through following God's law. Okay? So let's, say, let's talk about what the law exactly is. The word in Hebrew for law is halakha beautiful word, and it means the way. Now, my New Testament knowledge is not exceptional, but I'm pretty sure it says, Jesus says, I am the way and the light and the... Thank you very much. You're much better at that than I am, right? But it's really always been amazing to me that Jesus says, I am the way. And if he were saying that in Hebrew, he would say, ani halacha. Right? I am the way. He would say, I am the law, which is so cool to me. So, um, so that's the Hebrew word for it. it. Originally in the Torah, it's understood that there are 613 mitzvot or commandments, right? 613 laws. And those laws break down into two categories. They are um, the thou, thou shalt and the thou shalt not. And because people have thought about this over the millennia, they decided... I'll come back to what I mean when I say they decided, that there are 365 thou shalt nots. What else is in 365s? Very good, days of the year. Sometimes I think it's degrees in a circle because I always get those two backwards, but yes, days in the year. And there are 248 thou shalts, positive commandments. Anyone take a guess what 248 is? You, you shouldn't know this one. <laughs> So the rabbis of old said that there are 248 bones, muscles, organs, and sinews in the human body, which is really lovely, this idea that if you take the days of the year 
and you take the human body and you put them together, you have this sense of completion and wholeness. It also makes it a little bit easier to remember how these things, um, how these things, things break down. And after the destruction of the temple, there are only 270 laws left that you can follow, which means the vast majority of Bible law was about how to offer sacrifices, what the pre-vestments look like, how you're supposed to do temple things. And when you can't do temple things, there's only 270 laws left. It's not a lot of laws, right? Our county alone has significantly more laws than that. So just pushing on the idea that the Torah law was onerous and, and too hard to hold, probably not, right? Probably not. Um, at the year... Uh, at the year zero, the early rabbinic literature talked about um, laws coming in two categories of light and heavy. They, of course, had a, a privileging for doing the harder ones, but most people would do the easier ones, right? So it's easier to, um, I'm trying to think of a good example. Um, you know, it's easier to build your sukkah, right? The little booth that you you uh, grow, you 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 erect after the holy days. If you want to know what those look like, you should come over to my house. Um, after the holy days, you all are cordially invited. We'll have a sukkah in my front yard. When everybody is building a sukkah, it's a pretty easy thing to do, right? Everybody helps each other out, and you can do that. Um, but when you're living alone, right, following the laws can be harder. So that's an example where they get lighter and heavier. Um, women are not bound to, are not obligated to the time-bound mitzvot, the commandments, the time-bound commandments. Why? Women are obligated to the affairs of the household and to the rearing of children. And to say to um, all these women, in addition to you know, um, cooking all the meals, keeping the house clean, nursing your children when they're hungry, so forth and so on, you also have to pray by sunrise and pray by this time of day and do this and do that and do this. It just was impossible. Right? So they didn't want it, nobody wanted the law to be impossible for people to follow, and so women were exempted from the time-bound mitzvot. Um, if you ever want to have the conversation with me as why women can't be rabbis in the orthodox world, it kind of comes back to that moment in time, and I'm happy to tell you about it later, but just you can now sort of think about, oh, how does that work? Right? Um, another piece is that there's a, there's a, there's a, a dictum that says, pikuach um, nefesh, to save a life, supersedes everything else. Right? So whenever there's an opportunity to save somebody else's life, any other law that you think you're keeping, you're supposed to not keep in order to go save someone's life. So if it's Shabbat, there's a whole host of things you can and can't do on Shabbat, um, but all of those are out the window if there's, you know, you need to get in your car to go drive to go rescue somebody. They weren't thinking about cars, but you get what I mean. Um, and what supersedes that is that there is no... Um, Taking precedence over saving a life is you're not allowed to commit adultery, idolatry, or murder, right? It's better to give up your life than to do these three things. So if you boil it down to its essence, there's really three things you're not supposed to do. So the law goes from 613 to 270 to three, right? Don't adulter, don't idolize, and don't um, murder. There's a whole bunch of things we just sort of organically do. We could throw those in the mix also. But you can see how suddenly it's like, oh, this is not, this is not meant to be an oppressive uh, system. It's built on this idea of being um, relatively reasonable. Different thinkers throughout time have different ideas of why they think the law exists. Uh, I'll just list you some of them. 
Um, the second century rabbis thought that the law was there to refine humanity. Um, there's also a sense that you should do it, otherwise there's consequences to not following the law. That's in some of the Jewish liturgy. We may talk about that later. And um, that you follow the law to honor God, that you, um, Maimonides, who was a 13th century Egyptian, Israeli, Spanish philosopher, he moved around quite a bit, uh, said that the law was there to help take care of the well-being of the body and the well-being of the soul, which I think is beautiful. Um, it gives you a sense of being connected to history is another point of why you might follow the law. That's much more relevant, I think, today. Uh, and lastly, David Wolpe, who's a conservative rabbi, he said that uh, if God didn't give the Torah... Right, oh, right, so... Pause, right. I have to jump in here and interrupt myself. Here's the thing about law. So the belief is, right, here's, here's Mount Sinai. Here it is. You all see Mount Sinai? I've just drawn it here in the air for you, right? And standing at the top of Mount Sinai, you've got Moses, and he's standing there, and he's receiving the tablets from God, and up above that, you've got God. We don't anthropomorphize in the Jewish tradition, so however you want to sort of think of that without thinking about it, great. If that moment in time where the Ten Commandments are given, when the law is given, is fact, true, unalterable fact, then that likely, likely puts you into the camp of being an Orthodox Jew. right? If Torah is immutable and inarguable, that's that. If you look at the scene, and this is um, as it has been preserved by the tradition and passed down through the generations, likely largely what happened, but that transmission of the tradition has been altered perhaps by human error because we are human, that will probably put you in the camp of conservative, conservative Jew, which is sort of more middle of the road. Uh, and then the last case is if you look at that and you think of this as one of the founding myths of the Jewish people, and when I say myth, I mean capital M epic Greek-style myth, right, not to dismiss it in any way, then that largely probably puts you in the camp of somewhere around being a Reformed Jew, right? I'm an affiliated Reformed rabbi. Personally, I sort of live in this post-denominational world, and on different days, I have different relationships with this story. Sometimes it's fact, sometimes it's myth, sometimes it's somewhere in between, you know, because I'm also human. Um, so David Wolpe, who's a conservative rabbi, that middle-of-the-road place, that allows for the possibility that this moment in time is not historical fact, but more foundational myth, asks the question, if the law didn't come from God, then why do you need to follow it? Right? Why bother? Just know conservative Jews, generally speaking, also follow Jewish law. It's a great question. Anytime you meet a conservative Jew, you can ask them this one and see how they manage this, because it's a, it's, it's a really challenging question. Uh, and what he says is that the obligation stems from a place of relationship, that Judaism is the language we speak to each other, to history, and to God. I love that. It makes me want to be more law-abiding, like Jewish law-abiding. Uh, personally, there's a whole host of Jewish law that I choose to follow, uh, a lot of the ethical laws, a lot of those things you pull out of like Leviticus, um, but I don't follow um, strict Jewish law, right? So I keep some kind of kosher. We can talk more about the details of that some other time. I don't eat the bacon or the ham, um, but, you know, uh, but it's an evolving process for me. So just as one reformed Jew to a room full of people, you can get a sense of what's out there, right? I can follow some, but not all of it. And that's, to me, one of the great things about being Jewish. Okay, so now you have a sense of what law is and why we need it, right? It somehow helps to create or 
be the conduit for the relationship between people and God. Okay? Now, how the, the Torah, right, these texts in the Torah, in the Bible, turn into law is a whole other process that I also want you to understand. Great. I'm just going to go until somebody says we have to stop. Okay. Um, so, right, the Torah is the source. Um, it's, a, it's a life book. It's not written to be a legal code. So, for example, it says, like, in, for the holidays, right, don't, um, you shall do no work on Shabbat, right? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You should do no work. You and your manservant and your maidservant and all the people in your house and everybody, and your, your animals, and every, nobody should do any work on Shabbat. Great. What does that mean? Right? What does it mean not to do work? Think about it. For you and I, it means I'm not going to my place of employment. Although, quite frankly, Shabbat is like the only time I go to my place of employment. <laughs> so for everyone else, it's a day off. But that's not what they meant then. Right? That's not what they meant then. And we don't really know what that text in the Torah really essentially means. So we're left with this question of how do you figure that out? Right? So, um, so there's a separation between the written Torah, Torah Shebiktav, and the oral Torah, Torah Shebalpeh, right? The written law and the oral law. And here's where we start to get into some of the arguments. This is going to bring us to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, I promise, and the Sanhedrin, I promise. We just might run out of time first, but that's okay, <laughs> right? So um, one of the first legal codes is called the Mishnah. It's written in the second century. It's put together in the second century. And one of the books within the Mishnah is called Pirkei Avot, The Ethics of the Fathers. And the very first teaching in Pirkei Avot says the following. Moses received the Torah from Sinai and transmitted it to Joshua, Joshua to the elders, from the elders to the prophets, the prophets to the men of the great assembly, who are the precursors of the Sanhedrin. Um, and they said three things, be delivered in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make offense around the Torah. Okay? So there is this idea that the Torah, they don't just mean the text, right? But keeping track of the Torah, taking care of those laws, is passed down from one generation to the next, and that there's what to do in order to do that, right? Making a fence around the Torah means you should do things that make sure you're keeping the law within the Torah intact. So let me give you an example. <laughs> right, we, we all know it says three times in the, in the Torah, you shall not bathe a cow in its mother's milk. It's where we get the prohibition against eating a cheeseburger, right? Don't mix milk and meat. Now, originally, that was sort of the end of the prohibition, and the early rabbi said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Sometimes, sometimes, you can go to Winn-Dixie and you can get ground chicken or ground turkey, and you can turn that into a patty and you can put cheese on it, and it will look just like a cheeseburger. And as much as it's okay to eat a turkey burger with cheese melted on top, there's no prohibition against that, you might forget. And you therefore, the next time, might eat a hamburger with cheese on top. So therefore, turkey burgers with cheese are out. Do you see the logic? It feels a little silly as I say it to you, and I'm being a little silly because I'm giving you a hamburger cheeseburger example, but that's the idea of putting a fence around the Torah, right? Lest you get confused over something else, we're going to take that out of the realm of possibility, too. Uh, on Shabbat, you're not supposed to extinguish a candle, so you're not allowed to move a candle. 
just in case as you're walking around, the wax splashes up on the candle and puts it out. Right? There's nothing wrong with actually moving a candle around, but you just can't do it just in case. It's the just in case clause. Right? So as these, um, as we're moving from the written Torah into the oral Torah, one of the ideas that's kept in mind is not only how do you keep the laws, but how do you keep yourself keeping the laws? Okay. Um, the first realm of literature, so we have these series of, of literatures, these bodies of literature that grow up trying to do justice, trying to take Torah from a series of, law, of commandments and turn it into a law book, turn it from a life book to a law book. Okay? It's a great challenge. It's a great challenge. And it's, of course, heavily steeped in ideas around interpretation, which is where we get a lot of conflict, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes. Still, we'll get to them. Um, so there's this whole body of, of literature. We have all of these rabbis throughout time who are sitting there saying, this is how you should do it. You should do this thing. You should do this thing, right? And, and they're, they're um, collecting all of these teachings over centuries, over centuries, trying to figure this out, trying to put it all together. Um, and the writings are called Midrash. I'm sorry that Bethany just walked out. She and I were having a conversation about Midrash earlier. Uh, but Midrash is any kind of um, teaching, usually has some kind of narrative piece to it, although not always. And it falls into two, um, two categories, either law, legal Midrash, or um, storytelling Midrash. There's beautiful, beautiful stories in the legal literature, like woven into the legal literature, are these great um, parables, actually, um, which is really, they're fun. They're really fun to pull out. Um, folk tales, lessons on ethics and religious practice, and so on. When you're putting together a piece of legal writing, right, uh, Midrash Halakha, as it's called, you want to make sure that you're referencing something in the Torah, because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to take the Torah and translate it into something usable. They will take something like a verse, right, they'll take a verse as it's written in the text. That would be one way that they'll make a law. I mean, the stuff that's really clear. Don't eat pork. That gets written down as don't eat pork, right? They don't have to do any translation of that one. Um, they'll use something that they conclude from another verse where it says, don't bathe a cow in a mother's milk. That's where they get the idea, don't mix the eating of milk and meat, right? It doesn't say it explicitly, but it's a pretty short jump of extrapolation from what it says to how we actually live it out. And the last is that there are all of these traditions that had, drawn, had grown up in and around um, Jewish communities. And they had been there for forever. But there was no legal basis for them. It's just the way of the world. And so they said that these things that they did that were legally sanctioned um, were also from Sinai, were given, from, given to Moses at Sinai. So it's a really neat little out, right? It's like you're going to be really strict and really strict, and it has to go back to the Torah, except for when it doesn't. Because <laughs> this is who we are, because we're people, and we love being people, right? We embrace the sense of, well, we're humans, we're messy, we're flawed, right? And we don't always have it exactly right. The next category, so that's all the stuff that comes from the Torah, and then we have all these laws that come from the rabbis, right? The rabbis sort of say, well, look, we have no way to really extrapolate this from the text, and so we're going to invent how this is going to work, how it makes sense. So how you keep law, um, how you keep Shabbat, what it means not to work on Shabbat, that comes from the rabbis. Um, we don't have time, but I'll explain to you one day, if you want to, how they get, there's 39, there's 39 different things you're not allowed to do. 
and they get this prohibition. They put it all together. Um, most of the blessings that we say as Jews come from the rabbis. Okay? So the rabbis start writing down and start collecting all of these things, destruction of the first temple and onward. Right? This sort of body of literature, even before it was written down, grows up from um, 586 BCE onward. Okay. We're getting close to Jesus now, I, I promise. Um, actually, I'm going to jump past Jesus for just a second and to tell you about the first legal book, right? the first law book that was written down. It's called the Mishnah, which has something to do with, with the word telling. Right? It means to either to tell or to change. Uh, it's written down between 170 and 220, um, of the common era. So it's a contemporary code to Paul, which is so interesting, right? I think I have that right, yeah? Paul's around 200-ish, yeah? Great. There are enough nodding heads that I'm going to go with it. Right, so here the rabbis are writing down the Jewish law at the same time that Paul is writing down the Jesus law. Law may not be the right word, but right, all these things are getting written down at the same time. What have to do with the environment and sort of upheaval in the world and the need to sort of codify and hold on to things uh, at the same time. The, the Mishnah is written in this very, very compressed style. It's not always the most clear. It's a little bit um, disordered in the way that it's put together. And the thing that I want you to know is that it includes not only the winning argument, but it also includes the losing arguments, right? So here these, these people, these rabbis, Judah Hanasi was the rabbi who sort of led the charge in doing this, get together in a room, and they take, you know, I imagine them sitting there with like a little um, note card with each teaching on it. And they're like, all right, these are all the ones that have to do with eating shellfish. So let's put that over here. And here are all the ones about marital relationships. And here are all the ones about damages. And, right? and they put them all together and arrange it in this vaguely haphazard kind of way. But they put everything in. They wanted to honor the history. They wanted to honor the rabbis. But I think they also really wanted to argue, uh, honor the argument and to move away from the idea of absolutism in law, right? That there isn't just one way. And what they recognized from the very, very, very beginning was that as time moves forward and the world changes, the law will too and that there's room for that. There's an expectation that that's going to evolve. And so, of course, they wanted to keep the history. right? If you think about Supreme Court decisions, um, American law is largely based on this legal system that I'm telling you about now, which is really amazing. right? It's all like tort law. So you have to have the dissenting opinion. You have the winning opinion, you have the dissenting opinion. So that when you go back and look at it 150 years later, 1,000 years later, you can know that they considered all of these things, right? They considered this exception, they considered this rule, they considered this provision. Uh, and it's amazing, amazing text to read if you like that kind of thing. <laughs> Not everybody does. Um, so, so that gets closed around, the, around 200. The next legal code is called the Talmud. It's like the great legal code of all times. It's the Gemara, right? The, I mean, the Mishnah, excuse me, which is that first legal code I told you about, plus commentary on it which was trying to kind of give it a little more organization. Uh, and those things put together as, is called the Talmud. And I um, wish I had brought you a page of Talmud. It's really lovely. It has the Mishnah text in the middle and all these commentaries written out around it. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful piece of, of text to, to look at it. There are amendments that are put into that. They're called Takanot. It's like our Bill of Rights, right? There are all these amendments that get made over time. Uh, the 14th century, 
there was an amendment that, that was made that said that, um, that marriage, there was no more polygamy, right? 14th century, that's not that long ago. All right, that's an amendment that gets put in. Um, and then there are all these other texts that get grown up over time, which I won't take time to tell you about because we don't have it. Uh, and then last, you have these um, questions and answers, right? Q&A. Um, they're called shooting. It just means questions and answers, uh, or responsa literature. And you can go online today. If you want to go look at Jewish legal responsa, you can see it. It's still a vibrant body of literature um, that lives in the world right now. Okay, so Pharisee, Pharisees, Sadducees, and Karaites in three minutes or less. Um, the Pharisees really loved the idea of the oral law. They were the priestly class. The priests were the ones who got to create the oral law, who got to say, yes, we have the Torah, and it is the be-all, end-all document, but we need to make this usable and livable in our lives. So, of course, they valued the oral law. right? That was their, their bread and butter, but it's also sort of the essence of who they, they thought that they, um, they were. There was that great assembly that I mentioned, right, from that text from Pirkei Avot. They were the forerunners to the Sanhedrin. So they were somewhere between 85 to 120 people. It's unclear exactly um, what the number was. Different sources say different things. And it was split into half. You either had the, the people who ran the great assembly, who was called the, the, the father of the great assembly, um, and the other were the scribes. And you know that the scribes come up later, right? Um, so the scribes were people who were involved in the legal processes of, of the day. Um, so the controversy of the oral versus the written law begins in this time, where all of a sudden these people are saying, you've got to keep going. You can't use this written text as it is. You have to have some interpretation to it. And so, of course, right, those are the Pharisees. And then we have the Sadducees who say, no, you want to keep it um, intact, right? And the Essenes who are even more rigid around it. Um, these three groups ultimately... Um, or trying to answer the question, right? The, at the time of the destruction of the first temple, the question is, should we worship anyone other than God? And the destruction of the first temple firmly convinces people, nope, just God. And because you're worshiping other gods, the temple was destroyed. The temple gets rebuilt, and the destruction of the second temple, they're trying to answer the question, how? How do we worship God? And they come up with this idea around prayer. But you can see that these Pharisees, Sadducees, and uh, Essenes, the Karaites, right, all these different groups, are all having this fight over what exactly it means to worship and why. And the thing that I want you to keep in mind is they felt like this argument was an argument for their lives, right? If you get it right, then you get God's favor and you survive on this earth, that the, your days are lengthened, the earth will bear fruit, and you will prosper. And if you get it wrong, then you perish. So the intensity of the fighting was such because the stakes were the lives of all these people themselves. Uh, see if there's anything else I want to make sure I tell you. There's so much more that I wrote here that I want to share with you, but I don't think we have time because I know you have to get back into church. So... Um, I just want to say this about the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were reformists, and they didn't have a quarrel with, Roman, with, with Rome and, and Rome's presence within Jerusalem per se, unless the Roman authorities interfered with their um, execution of Jewish law, which sometimes happened. Um, and at the same time, they also dreamed of having their own sense of autonomy and being their own, um, their own independent governing people. And after the destruction of the Second Temple, it's the Pharisees who ultimately keep Judaism alive. 
right? The Judaism that we have, that I have today, comes straight from um, those people. So I'm a little bit biased in their, in their, um, in their favor. So to come back to our myths from the beginning, right? Um, I need to talk enough about about God and God's love, but as you've seen as the things that I've been saying, um, following God's law is not necessarily the hardest thing in the world. Um, people can be more strict about it, but they don't have to be. It's not a requirement. And the part about God's love, let me just say this. Um, there's this moment in, in Exodus, right, where God's going to give the Torah, give the Ten Commandments. And God said, and the people stand up and they say, Na'asevenishma, we will do and we will obey. And I heard this text once that I thought was so great. Um, if somebody walks up to you and says, can you, or you walk up to somebody and you say, will you do me a favor? They're either gonna, they're gonna give one of two answers. They're either gonna go, what is it? Yes. Or gonna, they're gonna say, yes, what is it? Right? When God offers the Torah to the Jewish people and they say, we will do and we will obey, it's their way of saying, yes, we will take this thing on. Now, what exactly is it that you want us to do? Um, it's a sign of the sense of love and connection between God and the Jewish people that, it, that exists throughout. Um, we see it also in um, the liturgy, right? The, the central prayer within the Jewish um, liturgy is the Shema. You guys all know this. Hear, O Israel, Adonai is your God, Adonai is one, right? Um, Jesus repeats that. I think it's in, you all know which book it's in. I'm not going to pretend I know. Luke? Yes? Yeah. I love when I'm in a room of people who also can't quote Bible <laughs> chapter and verse. It makes me feel much better. We don't do that generally as Jews, and some, some um, Christian beliefs really, really uh, value that. Um, but you've heard that line before, right? That's a borrow from Jewish liturgy. Um, so in and around that prayer, there's a prayer on either side of that. And the one before it is Ahavat Olam, God loves the world. And the one on the other side of it is the via hafta. You love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And all these words which I command you on this day will be upon your heart. And you should teach them to your children. And you talk, talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by your way, so forth and so on. You know that text as well, right? Because when the scribes asked Jesus, what are the most important texts, what are the most important values you have? He says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's in Leviticus. And he says, um, Love of God, Vyahavta et Adonai Right? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Um, and he gets those ideas straight out of Jewish liturgy. So the idea that God loves the Jewish people and the Jewish people love God is conditional upon um, these uh, the following of law is um, not true. I didn't do very much to sort of flesh that out. Just trust me on that one, uh, because I know that we are out of time. So uh, I'm going to pause there. Okay, any and all questions that you may have at this point in time. I know I just threw like so much stuff at you. Yes, please. Okay. Some of the laws that like the linen and wool mm -hmm. that we don't really understand, I mean, they, did they have a different reason for that? No. And obviously, even though you don't understand it today, you still abide by it, as in your friend with Jack. Right, right. So the question was, um, was there at some point in time where people could like logically understand why the law, certain laws were there? And the answer is no. There are some things that are there that were just there, and you're like, oh, okay, I guess that's what we're going to do, right? Don't mix linen and wool. Um, 
Yeah, and, and to this day. And, and people still will follow those laws for whatever reason it is that they follow law, right? Which will vary from person to person, group to group, um, part of Jewish life to part of Jewish life. Other questions? Yeah. Can each individual follow the 217 law they have to follow now? You, you could. Uh, so the, the truth is, is that, you know, you could go back to follow law in the Torah as it stands as much as you can and follow those 270 laws. And those would make you more like the Karaites, who are sort of attached with the Essenes, right? Really, really strict Torah law. We're only going to follow what's in there. But truthfully, Jewish law has evolved beyond that. And those 270 are still incorporated, but they've sort of evolved into um, what's meaningful and relevant in the world today. So some of those things have turned into other ideas, and you wouldn't follow them the same way. So for example, the Torah says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? And as we all know, because we've read that bumper sticker, an eye for an eye makes the world go blind, right? Which is true. So the way that Judaism interprets that line, an eye for an eye, is to say, no, 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 this is metaphor. And it's a metaphor for compensation for damages. And there's a whole book of the Talmud known as damages that takes that one verse, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and it goes on to list a few few other things, right? An elbow for an elbow, whatever it is. Um, And explains this is about this case, this is about this case, this is about this case. So if you were to go back to those original 270, we'd be poking each other's eyeballs out, which we don't do. But we take the evolution of the law as it's been turned into something that's useful and livable and say, oh, when you back your car up into mine, you owe me money to pay for the damages done to my car. Right? I don't then get to turn my car around and smash into yours. As much as you might want to. Right. (laughs) You were thinking it, I know. So does that answer the question? Okay. So you could, but you wouldn't. Right. Um, there's There's a book called The Year of Living Biblically biblically, where this guy walks around New York City and he tries to follow as many of the biblical laws as possible, right? And he wears like a toga and, I mean, it's hilarious because he can't, you know, and he's like stoning people and, you know, condemning people for whatever. I mean, can you imagine New York City and all the stuff that happens in New York City, right? And he's sitting there judging it. I mean, like, it's, it's, it's funny uh, because you just you kind of just can't, right? We are just in a dip. We just live in such a different world today than that. Other questions? Really? You have no other questions? I don't think that means I've done well. <laughs> thank you. Well, thanks, everyone. You're all dismissed off the church. We're going to be here next week and the week after. Um, I hope to see you again soon. And thank you again for the birthday wishes.